You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, on this fine Thursday, October 19th, here at CR's Northern Command. And thankfully, the lawnmowers have stopped doing whatever they're doing outside, so I could finally record here in peace. Um, My goal today is to get your blood pressure as high as mine. Sorry about that. So I hope you have cartel insurance to uh, pay for your blood pressure medication. Um, You know, last week, I felt a little bad, a little guilty about shortchanging some of our time with my buddy Jordan Schachtel. We wanted to discuss Iraq foreign policy, and I kept bringing in the courts, and I spent a lot of time in the courts, and nobody was talking about it. What has happened since we put that podcast out, in the last 72 hours, is a a degree of unimaginable judicial hell, I would venture to say judicial gang rape, that is destroying the little that's left from America. And amazingly, this is still not even... The big story or any story among the conservative media, among anyone, there's no impetus to act. Our sovereignty, our security, our society is being destroyed. Not just by policies we disagree with, but through a process and a system that we never adopted in 1789 or through any of the ensuing amendments and statutes in our government. It is completely lawless. The inmates are running the asylum. The laws are lawless. The Constitution is unconstitutional. Everything that I've ever warned about, certainly you guys that have been here at the Conservative Conscience from day one know I've repeated this over and over again, all my theses and ideas about judicial supremacy and how it's even worse than you think and how our ability to stop it by appointing better judges, whatever that even means, is nonsense. It's it's failed for 50 years and what we really need to do about it. My goal today and I know this is a tall order given the time constraints we have, is to go through the severity of what's happened this week in the courts, demonstrate the trend, demonstrate why it's irremediably broken, understanding the psychology of the left, how they succeed at it, how the conservative movement and Republican Party are complete abject failures on this issue, and really it's the embodiment of every issue and encompasses every issue. And finally, what we can do about it. <laughs> so with no further ado, let's let's get started here. If God were to give me one political wish, you could have anything you want, it would be to end and solve this constitutional crisis with judicial supremacy. It's kind of a close call between that and fixing healthcare because I think those are the two linchpins to saving our economy, society, budget, dependency. But what the courts are doing is even more foundational to the root of our civilization. Imagine if, 
you know, t- take a look at these Antifa protesters, their values, what they do. Imagine if I put a robe on them and say whatever they say is the unquestionable, inviolable, final, and exclusive law of the land, and there's nothing you can do about that. What would happen to the country? Well, you, you need not guess because that is happening. Let me do a rapid fire round robin of what happened, and then we'll try to unpack some of it and you know, make sense of this. Within the last week, particularly the last 24 hours, 36, 72 hours, the courts have done the following. You ready? The Ninth Circuit, obviously, as always, they've invalidated another criminal alien deportation. The Fourth Circuit, this happened a while ago, invalidated the deportation of a a child molester, criminal alien. But what did happen this week is the Supreme Court failed or declined to take the Department of Justice's appeal. So another criminal alien is going to be allowed to remain in our country against our will. A judge in Chicago codified sanctuary cities by saying that the DOJ cannot simply create a competitive criterion for law enforcement grants and making one of the criterion for extra points, you know, kind of like race to the top for education, um, of complying with federal immigration law. And not only that, they applied it nationwide. We spoke about this last week, nationwide injunction. Not just the city of Chicago, but every sanctuary city can remain a sanctuary thwart federal law and get away with it. Okay? The, the Seventh Circuit, Chicago's in the Seventh Circuit. This was a Chicago judge, by the way, a Reagan appointee. Nothing personal to Reagan, but part of one of our theses, which is that Republicans don't have the ability to appoint all better judges anyway, and we never fully win on that. By the way, just before I forget, I'm going to link to a bunch of things in the show notes. Among them are my famous old article, 12 Reasons Why the Judiciary is Irremediably Broken. Um, I'm going to go through some of the math. I have two articles going through the math circuit by circuit. Nobody else has done this with a couple of cool graphics from our um, graphic guy here, uh, Mark Gorman, demonstrating uh, why the... Trump cannot remake the judiciary. He doesn't have that ability. Just if you look at the age demographics by circuit, who's retiring, who's not, who's old, who's young, what's the balance of power, we go through that. Active bench, senior status bench. Anyway, so in addition to that, in the Seventh Circuit, a judge said that a criminal alien that had firearms violations can't be deported. That's not enough of a crime of violence. The same circuit, by the way, that is infringing upon the gun rights of Americans, now an illegal alien gets to stay. But I continue. In Hawaii, this is the most notorious one, Judge Watson says, even after the Supreme Court, which is supposed to be in you know unassailable from a you know conservatives can't assail it but weeks after the courts slapped it down 
and said there's throughout the most of the case against the um, even stronger so-called travel ban. Trump issues um, uh, two more, two more, and this is the third one, the weakest of them. So you have the you know flim- flimsiest case against it, and the Hawaiian judge says, "No, I'm going to put a nationwide injunction on it. Once again, apply it nationwide, and they'll they'll win the appeal in the Ninth Circuit." And by the way, what he was essentially saying is that, see, you have to understand, it's not just that they ignore law. They take the law and they flip it on its head. So whereas the law gives the president full discretion to shut down immigration when he determines, he doesn't have to show evidence, he doesn't have to anything, whatever he wants to do, he could do. And in fact, quite the contrary, the law requires the State Department to cut off visas to at least the countries that are on the State Department terror list, designated terrorist list. And there they kind of have to show why they're not a threat in order not to do it. So it's the exact opposite. But the judge says, you have to submit in front of me your national security concerns to to, to demonstrate that it's sufficient enough. National security is the new Obergefell and Roe v. Wade. National security has now been taken over completely by the courts. Borders are erased by the freaking courts. There is no limit to the power that our corrupt political establishment has ceded to them. And they are all too hungry to utilize every bit of that power. And by the way, just to demonstrate how political, you know, political animals these guys are, this guy started off his opinion jabbing at Trump on the NFL. So it's funny, like, we view these guys as some sort of, you know, machine-oriented oracle, like, they're beyond politics. You gotta let, you know, they're everything. They're not political. And here he was sitting and, and jabbing Trump on the NFL. He had footnotes referencing more of Trump's tweets. Unbelievable. But again, is it really unbelievable what the courts are doing? It's unbelievable that the Republican so-called conservatives in Congress in the executive branch in the Office of Legislative Counsel in the White House and DOJ and these stupid, phony, conservative commentators who complain about judicial supremacy, say it's completely lawless, say there's not a shred of legality and legitimacy to it, and then they say, it's the law of the land and we must follow every whim of it. How unbelievably pathetic. Very sad. But I continue. Next morning, this was Wednesday morning, a judge in Maryland, District Judge Chang, did pretty much the same thing. And he's in the Fourth Circuit. Notice they're going to the Fourth and the Ninth Circuits. Okay, I got two more for you this week. And there's more, but I can't remember off the top of my head, so we'll just do two more for now until I remember. A San Francisco-based judge said that Trump needs to cede over to his, to his bench so he could examine all of the emails, text, letters, source material of his legal advisors, political advisors, explaining the rationale and lead-up behind getting rid of the DACA amnesty. So just some brief background here, and this is going to blow your mind, and if nothing else, this more than anything else demonstrates that we are living in a degree of judicial hell and judicial gang rape that 
I, I can't even use any adjectives to properly give over what's going on. It's not hyperbole. It's, I'm underselling it. DACA was the most unconstitutional thing imaginable. The Library of Congress has said that that's something that even King George couldn't do when they had a parliament. The reason why I'm able to say that with such confidence is because think of an analogy that you want to use to you know compare what Obama did and the gravity of what he did. And I'll tell you that your analogy is actually under um, underselling what he did. Because you know, often I've heard conservatives, I've, I've used it myself, imagine if a conservative president would say, if you don't do tax reform or you don't do social security reform, I'm going to direct the treasury to not withhold a certain percentage of young workers' income, payroll taxes, yada, yada. But the truth be told, A, constitutionally they're probably right because social security is unconstitutional, and B, at least there are merit, hardworking Americans that are entitled to their money. I'm not suggesting we do that. I'm just saying... At least they're Americans. Here, you're taking people that have no right to be here, and you're engaging in the ultimate national private property violation and violating the sovereignty of America and giving them affirmative status. You're giving them social security cards and access to refundable tax credits. I don't care if you are a super liberal on immigration as a matter of policy. You want to bring in three trillion people from the third world. But okay, so pass a law and do that. But you certainly cannot agree that a president can do that. When pursuant to statute, these people have to be deported, much less be afforded affirmative benefits and privileges. Yet, now that Trump merely just terminated that, right? He didn't do anything active, do anything unique. He took Obama's revolutionary thing and just went back to the status quo of what it was before then. The ACLU and similar groups have sued in five different district courts, one in New York, one in San Francisco, three others. And they have already indicated that they seem to be, they're going to rule with the plaintiffs that DACA is the law of the land. Immigration statutes are not the law. Amnesty is the law of the land. Okay. And in the process, they are violating executive privilege, separation of powers, and all legal norms and practices of you know client-attorney privilege. I mean, I've spoken to people that know a lot more about this than I do, and they were appalled by it. You know, putting aside the whole immigration thing, how the courts have no jurisdiction, how so again, they're flipping it on its head. On its head. Flipping immigration law on its head. I mean, the, the laws say blatantly that the courts have no jurisdiction. The courts said that. There's no right to a habeas corpus petition of denial of visa that has been for 200 years in our country. And with the flick of a wrist, they have no problem doing it. No problem. So that's going on. I'm sorry, I said two more cases. There was really three more. Now I have two more. I remembered. Then what I believe is the capstone of the immigration cases this week, and then the, there's a final one that's not immigration, but we'll juxtapose it, is the D.C. district judge that went and said that went and said that a 17-year-old illegal alien that's in detention now has the right to an abortion. So they mixed the right to break our sovereignty with the right to an abortion 
and you get one big super judicial Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, because the Trump administration was saying, wait a minute, I don't have to afford you access to abortion. You know, so she was saying, you know, the attorneys are saying she's being held hostage. Just so you guys know, an illegal alien who comes here, they are free to self-deport voluntary voluntary departure at any po- time. They want to use our our generosity against us by litigating their case into status. So of course then we have to hold you because otherwise, you know, you're you're going to abscond and be here forever, which by the way is happening and the courts are also getting rid of detention too. And then we we talked about that before. But in the meantime I said she has a right to an abortion. What do you want from her? You're holding her. No, go freaking home to Mexico and get your stupid abortion. Leave me alone. Folks, you can't make this stuff up. And then finally, within a couple hours of this decision yesterday, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals upholding a, another wacko district judge in Maryland went and said that in Blandenburg, Maryland, Prince George's County, Maryland, where there's this uh, World War I memorial of veterans that has a cross on it, it's unconstitutional and has to be ripped down. Illegal aliens have a right to come here and a right to an abortion, a right to criminalize ICE and the president and treat them like criminals for enforcing the law. They have a right to education. They have a right to welfare. They have a right to force states and treat states like pariahs for not granting them um, driver's licenses. Some Muslim sitting in some shack in Yemen or Somalia or Chad has a right to a visa lest his religious liberty be violated. But American Christian veterans don't have a right to just erect a monument. That is the judicial hell we are living in today. And that is the judicial hell that is being ignored by 99% of this utterly pathetic, phony, conservative movement that is all too happy to talk about judicial activism and then not only do nothing, but when someone like myself wants to push back against the courts, they savage you. They savage Judge Moore. They call him unfit for office. At the same time, they say the courts are lawless. Folks, this is very telling, and I want to unpack this. Look, it took a little while to get this out, but that's part one. That's what happened. Now I want to unpack how these cases in totality proves every thesis of mine, all dozen or so, why the courts are irremediably broken, how they're irremediably broken, how conservatives are missing the point, and um, what we could do about it, all from the details here. Notice a pattern. Notice that they're all taking these cases, for the most part, to the 4th, 9th, and D.C. circuits. A little bit to the 7th. You know, Sometimes it's a circumstance. Sometimes they could shop it around. They could often could shop it around if it's national in scope. As I noted last week, what they are doing is going to any number of crazy judges that they will always have. 
that literally there is nothing that is not part of the Antifa alt-left wing of the Democrat Party political agenda that they will not codify as a legal constitutional agenda in their mind. They'll do it shamelessly. And then they'll do it in a circuit where they'll win the appeal. And nine times out of ten, the Supreme Court will not take it up. And that ruling stands. Even when they do, they'll start to entertain it. And that's that's what we're missing here. They're going to keep going there. You know, this D.C. district judge with the abortion right to abortion for an illegal alien. They have an 11 to 1 majority on that court. You know, I almost flipped out. So part of my goal here is is to demonstrate how bad it is so people recognize the need for the solution. I flipped out when I saw in response to the Hawaiian judge, you know, with the travel ban, people like Laura Ingram were saying on Twitter, this is why we have an urgency to appoint better judges. And I was like, oh, damn, no, not this craziness again. You're missing the point. They're doing this all in circuits that they can get away with and it won't matter. Appointing better judges doesn't speak to this. The ability of a good judge to do good is not commensurate with the ability of a bad judge to do bad. Because if you understand the tactics the left is doing, the left is incessant. They're shameless. They're indefatigable and they're ubiquitous. I use all those terms even though some of them are kind of synonyms, but they're all closely related. They're closely related. They're incessant in that they never give up. No matter how radical it is, they'll go. They'll, they have the resources to put any common sense policy in court. They're shameless in the fact that they will posit any argument and they have people willing to do it. Meaning, see, we're so desensitized. Part of what happens in, in Western democracies is we're very scared of the unknown. Like, oh, well, you can't do that. But what if I go and do it? It becomes normal. And what if I'm incessant about it and make it ubiquitous and I'm indefatigable in my approach to it and I'm shameless in the degree that I'm willing to pursue it? It's everywhere. It becomes very normal very easily. So this is how they get the lower courts to lead a a relentless, strong jurisprudential velocity always in their direction. Even when the Supreme Court side with us, they don't say it's the law of the land. They'll take a slightly different case and they'll rule. That, that's what they did in Hawaii. I mean, despite the Supreme Court. And what it does is, it's like, no way. You're, you're, you're going to tell me it's unconstitutional to be a Christian in America. You're going to tell me it's unconstitutional to have immigration laws, that there's a right to immigrate. There's a right to, come on, Daniel. They're never going to do that. But they'll do it. And once you do it, our people kind of start entertaining it. We start talking to them, talking to their arguments. Well, no, no, there, there is enough evidence. There is enough need. Well, what do you mean? You don't have to prove that there's any need. A president has the right to bar anyone for anything. Oh, it's not discriminatory, even if it is discriminatory. There's no discrimination for immigration. But we agreed to the premise. They get it on the map. Once it's on the map, it's legitimate. You know, this is why you read throughout the Old Testament um, God was so concerned about, you know, um, sanctifying God's name in public and or things being done in public. 
you know, that the public needs to see someone being punished because the fear was if someone does, um, you know, d- d- does some sort of uh, iniquity, you know, they, they do some sort of a sin. Well, once they do it publicly, it's, you know, the, the, the dam breaks, then people lose their fear and it becomes normal. I mean, this is a very deep theological issue, and it, it really applies to all major religions. Um, but it, it's true with the law. Once you do it, it's normal. And you see it. I'm the only one who's not desensitized to it in this movement. I mean, you even read the articles denouncing some of the court's things from the National Review and these thumbsuckers. They, they're, they're, they're just like so underwhelming. Like, Really? Well, one of them called it, oh, the courts are a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> I mean, it's like one day the courts are going to say we're going to rape all Republican women. And they'll say, well, that, that's a bit of a stretch to say that that's part of the 14th Amendment. You know, um, they, they, don't, they just don't get it. But that's – see, it would be the equivalent if on the right we had Republican judges. I'm not suggesting we do this. I'm just saying why there's the imbalance, why it's always going to move in one direction, why we're never going to fix it. It would be as if I, I, I would tell you we're going to take Barack Obama's foreign policy to court. We are going to sue for an injunction against our troops in Afghanistan. We're going to sue for an injunction against the two-state solution. Pursuing, using our funds to pursue two-state solution. We're going to place an injunction on funding the Shiite militias beheading the Kurds now. No conservative judge in the world would ever have the shame or be shameless enough to go and posit that. No, no conservative legal group would ever have the, the temerity to be a plaintiff in a lawsuit and advance such an argument. The left does it, and they do it everywhere, and they do it in every district they can, and they know where to go, and they do it constantly. They win most of the time. The few times they don't yet go there, they'll come back in a few years because the left is willing to do that. Their people are willing to do it. Their judges are willing to do it. Once it gets on the map, we've lost. That is what happens. This is how we've gone on the immigration issue in just two years from a 100% settled law, the most settled area of law, the plenary power doctrine that the political branches control immigration unquestionably without any judicial review, habeas corpus petitions, to the courts control 100% of immigration, giving all sorts of rights to them, and the political branches have to beg for forgiveness and, and plead their case in front of the courts to, to do anything. That's how they do it. And this scam of of nationwide injunctions, here's what they're able to do. See, what people miss is that even if you believe in judicial review, and even if you believe in judicial supremacy and judicial exclusivity on that review, meaning your decision is final, nobody could argue it's only in that case or controversy that has legitimate standing before the court. Right? A court is not a veto or an upholding power. There's nothing to do with that. It's not a political branch. It's not why they're not elected. They can't 
They don't judge laws. They judge individuals. Just so you understand the relationship, there's the executive branch, legislative branch, federal branch, then there's the states and their respective three branches, and then there's the people. Those are all the relationships in the Constitution. So the people have the right to petition the court if they feel a fundamental right is being, I'm, I'm being hurt by a law or an executive practice or implementation of that law. And I have a valid grievance that's hurting me, that's redressable, that needs to be redressed, that I have standing. And it's a, a, a right, and, and when I say a right, that's defined by a positive, proactive government uh, action taken against my negative right. Rights are negative, not positive. This was so important about Clarence Thomas's dissent in Obergefell, what he tried to explain. You, know, you could say you have a right not to be punished, fined, imprisoned, executed for a certain thing your life, liberty, property, even if you agree as a matter of policy you're entitled or want a certain thing, you don't have an unalienable right to demand from a state a gay marriage license, a visa, uh, or rip down a monument. I'm offended by it. I, you have to take it down. You don't have a right to, to demand a positive action against a negative of the executive or legislature, Okay. And I'm going to come back to that. That's a very important understanding to the remedy of what I mean by pushing back against the courts without even directly, God forbid, defying them, which is a misnomer in, in, in these type of cases, at least, where the courts are demanding the positive, the other branches are doing a negative. They're demanding that they use their not judicial but executive and legislative powers. The courts don't have the power over legislation and executive branch powers. They have the power of the judicial of the, the judicial power is vested in the courts to give relief to individual plaintiffs and say, you don't have to do this. So anyway, that's what the courts are doing here. They're saying, so let, let's go through some of these cases here. You don't have, let's put aside the fact that if the courts have no rights to get involved in immigration, they have no power. Um, there are no rights to immigrate. Foreign nationals cannot get standing to remain in the country against the decision of the political branches, whether they're criminal legal aliens or illegal aliens. That you know, neither of them have U.S. citizenship. Um, again, there are certain due process to punish you if I want to execute you, if I want to whatever, but to just deport you and say goodbye—that is settled, settled law, and it, it's. Again, you don't need the courts to tell you that. It's inherent in sovereignty, social compact theory, the Declaration of Independence, and the laws of nation states, if you understand that. But let's go beyond that. There is no valid case or controversy here. Okay? You can't put a national policy on trial. There's no such thing. You can't strike down an executive order. You can't strike down a memo. You can't strike down a political goal of an administration. There's nothing to do. There's no So this is where it comes in. This is how, but but rather than rule on an individual case, they've created this false sense that they could strike down a policy and even a district judge could do it outside of their case and geographical jurisdiction, which is wrong. So this is how they are going to paralyze the any good thing 
this administration wants to do, or theoretically, if we had a better Congress and they were actually doing what we want to do, everything within three seconds would be put in district court and nine out of 10 would be upheld for their end. And we're done on any policy that's national in scope. You're, you're not filling them. It, it makes no sense. So they'll lie, cheat, and steal to give someone standing to sue a visa policy. It makes no sense. You know, like, like I said in the Fourth Circuit case on the second travel ban, or the first one, I believe, um, in that case, they weren't even denied visas, and they got standing. There was no grievance to, to fill. They directly gave them standing to shoot at the literal text of the memo because that in itself made them feel rattled. It made them feel stigmatized. That was their grievance. That was their standing. That, that's what the courts are doing now. They're doing – I'll give you another example of how they're doing this. So a lot of people don't realize that the courts are on the cusp of getting rid of um, – all the good that Trump has done on, on getting rid of Obama's regulations. Just like with immigration, they're saying all the actions, discretionary actions Obama took, some of them are lawless, some of them we disagree with, but they are within his discretion, but certainly within your discretion not to do them and revert back to just before him. They're saying Obama's policies are the law of the land. So they're throwing out a lot of the regulatory relief. And one of the things, the, the D.C. District, which by the way is the second most important court D.C. District, D.C. Court of Appeals, the U.S. I mean, not the D.C. Um, municipality, the U.S. Court, um, and that they have an insurmountable majority for forever. Think about it this way: We're fighting over filling Janice Rogers Brown's seat. She was the best judge on the circuit, on one of the best in the entire bench. Everyone wanted her on the Supreme Court. That so when you say we're we're appointing better judges, you have to know what we're filling. I I went through almost every one of the vacancies and announced vacancies are good judges because the bad ones aren't going to retire on Trump's watch unless they die. A few of them will, but you know for the most part you're not going to have too many opportunities. And even the ones you have, they're not on circuits that you're gonna you're gonna you know tilt. So right now they have an eleven to one majority on the district, and they have a seven to one majority in my view. There's a seven to three Dem appointee majority, but two of the Republican appointees stink. Um, Brett Kavanaugh is the only good guy because Rogers Brown left. So now we'll have we'll go from seven to one to seven to two. Great, <laughs> lovely, lovely. As as my buddy Steve Day says, it's like the Cleveland Browns winning two games after going over fourteen. Like okay, you know that that that's not going to solve anything. But this is where all the constitutional cases are routed to the D.C. district. So keep that in mind. So one of the things they did is the judge in oral arguments seemed to indicate that he was going to, quote unquote, strike down Trump's order of directing the various agencies to strive for the goal of for every one regulation they promulgate to repeal three. Folks, put aside your politics for a minute. Just understand the judicial power. You can't take that to court. That's an aspirational political goal. It's not ripe. There's no ripeness. There's no standing. You would have to wait until he actually does something and gets rid of a certain rule, and then you subject that to 
statutory scrutiny. Does it follow the statute or not? Is it within it or not? But you can't shoot at an abstract policy. You need a valid case. It's the same thing here. You can't say, I'm striking down your cutting off of visas to Chad. So all the losers, and, and within three seconds, the Trump administration announced we're listening. Listen to what? There's nothing to listen to. Ha, who do I give visas to? Which people? Show me. How many? Five a day? Ten a day from Chad? Fifteen a day from Syria? Thirty a day from Libya? It makes no sense. Even Democrat administrations on a daily basis for all sorts of reasons, they're deny issuance of visas to all sorts of people. I mean, that, that's, that's normal. Or you're certainly not going to issue it to everyone. So who is it? Well, therein lies the problem. Because if you go down that thought process, that would mean, oh, so you have to wait until there's a valid guy who's denied and then sue. Oh, wait, how do you sue? How does a Somali sue for being denied a visa? They can't. Here's the problem. We're going to move on to the third stage. So what do we do about it? And why aren't we doing this? And the hypocrisy and the bankrupt nature of the conservative um, commentariat and political class. And when I say conservative, you know, I mean that tongue in cheek. You know, it's funny. There's a political headline that says, Thad Cochran is reportedly frail and disoriented. You know, and everyone jokes around that you have people like Cochran, Inhofe, a couple others that are serving as a retirement home and have no business serving in the Senate. But I would argue that almost the entire U.S. Senate and U.S. Congress and other branches of government are nothing but frail and disoriented. They are literally allowing the courts to rape them, and they don't have the power to do so. I'm in, I'm in the process of writing, uh, hopefully I'll have this out next week, a manifesto, 12 ways to fight back against the courts. And they're very realistic and they're very well-reasoned. Now, obviously, you know, it's appallingly long for an article. It's not an article, it's like a manifesto. It's going to be like 3,500 words. But even then, for 12 items divided by 3,500, I just scraped the surface. I hope to delve into the constitutionality, the history behind each one, and the political utility of pursuing each one. But one of the th points I make is this. So aside from the fact that my book mainly focuses on Article 3, Section 2 remedy, very simple, Congress could exempt, it's called exe Exceptions and Regulations Clause, Congress has plenary power to accept and regulate the jurisdiction, the subject matter of jurisdiction of the courts. They could strip them of jurisdiction. No, I'm sorry. They only, the courts only have the jurisdiction, the appellate jurisdiction that Congress vests in them. This is 100% true for the lower courts, 98% true for the Supreme Court. It's appellate jurisdiction. There's a couple of areas of original jurisdiction they have that you can't take away, but they, they don't really involve any of these cases. There's something more foundational. It's not that the courts have this power, but Congress could rip it away, which it's bad enough that the conservative movement ignores. It's more foundational than that. They don't have the power to enforce it. And let me explain what I mean. I don't just mean the Andrew Jackson, na 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 boo boo, you know, Marshall made his decision, now let him enforce it. Ha ha ha. I got an army, you don't. That's not what it, I mean something a little bit deeper than that. It's a separation of powers problem. 
let me explain to you the legitimate binding nature of the judicial power and the non-binding nature and the whole business of, of Marbury versus Madison. Let me explain the most extreme contrast case, what I'm not talking about, in order to illuminate what I am talking about. Let's say a court, a federal court, invalidates an execution, stays in execution um, you know, for all sorts of BS reasons. And by the way, this is happening all over the place. The Supreme Court is forever staying execution six to two. Only Alito and Thomas are on the right side. All sorts of politically correct BS reasons saying the jury, jury pool is racist. There's a whole trend. I, I've written about it a little bit last year. Um, nobody else has noticed this. It's, it's one of the big problems with John Roberts and Anthony Kennedy. Um, not rooted in the law or constitution at all. Let's say they have no authority to do that. They're completely wrong. But nonetheless, this is not a national policy. That guy, John Doe, got a ruling to stay the execution. A negative right. You are literally taking away his life. Now, again, we would argue we're in the right, and there are times that you have the right to take away life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness for criminals, and there's, there's state interest. You do have a reason. Um, and, there, and, and you're right. You're completely right about the Constitution. You're completely right about the statute. When I say you, I mean either on a federal case, the DOJ or the you know, governor, the state executive branch. The executive branch is right. Let's say they're right. Nonetheless, you're not going to go, and I'm not ag- advocating for to say you're wrong, and you're going to actively go and kill John Doe. You're going to execute him or even imprison or fine him. That is disobeying a court, not complying with a court. I'm not even advocating that. Although I will tell you that you do get to a point where they are so lawless where you are required to do that ethically and morally at some point. But I'm not even getting to that. Let, let's, let's walk before we, we, we run. I'm trying to say that even under the current system, not disobeying the system, which again, there is a time for civil disobedience, but they're the ones engaging in civil disobedience. I am telling you, what I'm telling is part of the system, and it's what our founders envisioned. It's what distinguishes judicial supremacy from judicial review. It distinguishes the courts having a co-equal say in the co- in the um in 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 the judicial process, and you know, in different political issues, to an exclusive and final arbiter role. By the way, sorry for the phone there. I forgot to turn it off and I don't even know how to turn this off. <laughs> my my wife switched the um different uh d- different handsets on me. Usually I have the one without the sound, so I'm sorry if it goes off again. Anyway, what distinguishes them is this. Let me start out. Let me read for you a comment. Um let me just Dig this up. James Wilson, one of the greatest founders, one of the fathers of Article 3, one of the biggest you know, judiciary guys around. I mean, you're not going to get a better authority on Article 3. A lot of people don't realize that judicial review is not a creation of Marbury versus Madison. It comes from James Wilson and Alexander Hamilton 20 years before, 15, 20 years before. Marbury merely plagiarized from 
Hamilton in, in Federalist 78. Literally plagiarized it, by the way, without citing it. There's nothing new about it. So I'm actually going to make judicial review even stronger than you think. But if you truly understand what it is, you're going to understand executive review and legislative review and separation of powers and how the rationale behind judicial review is a repudiation, the greatest repudiation. Its foundation repudiates judicial supremacy by definition. Let me let me um l- let me read to you this case from uh, what what uh, J- James Wilson said. This was collected works of James Wilson, edited by Kermit L. Hall. Um, that's just the version I'm, I'm citing here. I'm, I'm forgetting what letter. I don't have it in front of me. I apologize. Uh, you know when? You know which letter this was from? But it was sometime in the 1780s. Um, or it might have even been at the Constitutional Convention. I do have to um, verify this. I'm, I, I apologize. This regulation is far, meaning judicial review, is far from throwing any disparagement upon legislative authority of the United States. It does not confer upon the judicial de- department a power superior in its general nature to that of the legislature, but it confirms a- upon it in particular instances and for particular purposes, the power of declaring and enforcing the superior power of, not the courts, but the Constitution, the supreme law of the land. So right away you see the point is, the courts aren't supreme, it's the Constitution that's supreme. It's just that individuals have the right to say, look, they're throwing me in jail, they're fining me, they're imprisoning me, and they're wrong. I believe they're wrong. Let, let's see if you're wrong. Oh, I believe the Constitution is right. I'm going to give you that particular instance because it, it's particularly repugnant to the Constitution as written. In that particular case, because it's an unalienable right, it's not a public policy issue. In that way, that's the judicial power you have to listen to me. But what if a court goes along and says, you have a right to a gay marriage license. You have, or, or, or the courts themselves apply a negative against people's rights. You have to, as a principal, allow a boy into a girl's bathroom or I'll throw you in jail. You have to write a gay marriage, you know, give a gay marriage license or I'm going to throw you in jail like with Kim Davis. I'm going to, you know, eliminate your, your uh, um, life and liberty. A court says, you, I'm, I'm going to direct the executive branch. You have to go and um, issue visas to people from Chad. I'm going to direct state governments. You have to open up three Sundays before and hire county clerks to have early voting. Where I tell a state, you know, city mayor, state, Capitol building or a Supreme Court building, a state Supreme Court building like Judge Roy Moore in Alabama, you have to rip down a monument of the Ten Commandments. This is where the founders understood that the utility of, of, of the courts, of what they're doing, it's only as good as the paper it's printed on. It's only as good as the rationale and and uh ability to convince and persuade through their writing. It's called an opinion. But if it requires 
that you're now infringing upon executive power. You're asking the executive branch to violate their oath of office, their interpretation of the supreme law of the land that they know it to be. Of course, they, 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 they don't have to do it, but indeed they can do it. Judicial review, the, the, the rationale behind Hamilton in 78 and, and James Wilson at the Constitutional Convention and Marbury versus Madison, John Marshall there. The rationale that, that, look, I'm a judge. If someone comes in front of me and says the legislature passed a law to say anyone with the name John Smith has to pay an extra 10% in taxes, a bill of attainder, that it's repugnant to the Constitution. What am I supposed to do? I can't just interpret the law. I have to um, block implementation for this case. How much more so the executive branch? You cannot listen. I, I, you're, you're telling me they have a right to a visa? No, they don't. You go issue a visa. If you want, you go hire a hauler, Mr. Judge, and take down the Ten Commandments. You go sit at the polls three weeks before the election, five weeks before the election, and have early voting if you want. You can't force me to actively do it. And likewise, let's say the court says to Kim Davis, you have to let someone in. I'm saying you have to uh, give a gay marriage license. Otherwise, I'm going to issue a bench warrant for your arrest. Who, who um, serves and executes that warrant? The judge? Does the guy, does Anthony Kennedy get off his bench and, you know, get handcuffs? No. The founders, it wasn't by accident. They talk about it. Hamilton talks about it. They didn't want to give it to them. It, it's executive power that does it either a state trooper, depending on the issue, or the U.S. Marshals directed by the Attorney General, ultimately the President. Now that's our territory. That's not, to be clear, that's not defying a court. Because the court doesn't have that power. I know I've criticized him before because he went after Roy Moore and whatever, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. You know, this whole disconnect between, you know, what, what, uh, the, the conservative legal eagles, what they say in theory and what they do in practice. But, you know, I do have to say he had a really, really good line. And I'm going to write this in my, my manifesto here. He, had, he actually had, I would say, an excellent line to describe what Hamilton meant when he said there's neither force nor will of the courts. He said Hamilton's point was that we must depend on the persuasiveness of our written opinions to command the respect of our fellow citizens. They're like, that, that's a good opinion. That's the, that's the truth. People know the truth when they stumble upon it. And there would be pressure that the executive branch would have to carry it out and the legislature would have to fund it. But if it's a pile of garbage repugnant to the supreme law of the land, you're asking me to send out the marshals to infringe upon someone else's life and liberty a real right, religious liberty, at the expense of your BS right, repugnant to the Constitution, that is why they gave them no police force. It's not a loophole like, oh, you're being mean and strong-arming the courts and not listening to the courts. That was part of the system. There is no finality in public policy issues like you have finality in Latin called res judicata in Civil and criminal cases under the law. There's no finality over the law to strike down. Even if you have judicial review, it's not final. 
and binding outside the case and controversy. The other branches are expected to use their respective powers, which are more robust, to fight back. That is what we need to start doing. You don't start doing it on executions and imprisonments, but on you know when our guys are the victims, they want to lock up our people. We just passively won't lock up, lock them up. You're demanding a, a visa? No, I'm not doing it. You go do it. Nobody is talking like this in Washington. And this is where I want to get to the final point. And I know I've gone way over time here. This might wind up being the longest podcast ever, but bookmark this one forever. I want to get to the bankruptcy of the conservative media on this issue. And it's really the embodiment of the entire conservative political movement, but it's most evident in the conservative legal movement. You see, conservatives who work in Washington for the most part, they are with us on everything, except for when the ball is actually in play, when the outcome actually matters. And this is true of everything. You know, it's funny. The Wall Street Journal on economic issues will pretty much say the same thing as me three to four months out from that legislative point of contention in Washington. But then a couple weeks away when it becomes evident that Republicans aren't, are going to cave and you have to be part of the team, not only do they go back on everything they said without ever recognizing it, they repudiate and savage people like us that are continuing to say the same things they themselves were saying until now. That's because they don't believe it in their hearts and minds. They don't believe in the morality of their supposed morality the same way the left speaks to champions and eternalizes the immorality, the morality, I'm sorry, of their immorality. Like I said, the left doesn't just spew left-wing talking points. They're incessant. They're ubiquitous, they're indefatigable, and they're shameless. Now, I'm not asking that we be shameless, but the other three we should follow. We should actually do it in practice. Take everything I've said about the judiciary for the first 50 minutes or so of this show. 99 to 100% of it, depending on who you're talking to, will be agreed upon by the people I'm talking about. They'll pass around my articles. Oh yeah, Judge Watson, is a, what a horrible nut job there. But then when you take it to its logical conclusion, so therefore you can't actively go and follow them instead of the law, you have to follow the law. They'll not only disagree, they will savage you. The entire National Review on social media and in articles is savaging Roy Moore as unfit for office. One of them is a man named David French. Now, I, I usually don't like calling out fellow, you know, kind of conservative writer type of people by name. I just, I don't, I don't like doing, I don't like speaking ill of people um, if they're not public figures that are, you know, engage, you know, doing things that are consequential to the public. I just, I don't like gossiping. It's not my thing. Um, I, he, he's a really, he's, he, I pick him because he's a particularly good person. He, he, uh, later in life, he served in Iraq. Um, you know, after nine 11, he signed up. He, he's genuinely a, a, a good person. Um, and, and, and he's probably closer to us than most of the other thumb sucking punditry class. 
And that's exactly why I pick him. But because he's part of this circle, here's the mentality. He savaged Roy Moore's unfit for office because he wouldn't freaking rip down the Ten Commandments statute and redefine marriage. Okay, that was bad enough. My colleague Steve Dace has been challenging him and these people to come on his show all week. Explain what is your remedy to the judiciary? What do you do then? Other than talk about it and fundraise off of it and write articles off of it. What's your plan? You bunch of failures for 50 years that have allowed this to go on. Then, today... In the dictionary definition of temerity, of chutzpah, of impertinence, I see this guy writes an article. The judges are really doing crazy stuff here. Now, you read it and it's kind of laughable when you compare it to the, I guess, it's like the decaffeinated version of what I just said. It's all really like understatement. He's the guy who said, the judges are kind of stretching there. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And then he says it then, you guys need to stay in your lane. Really, David? Go make me. Or else what? How are you going to do that? So he goes and recognizes the problem and savages those that are doing the one thing that it's going to take to stop it. That, in a nutshell, folks, is why we are where we are on every issue. That is the failure that is my life. That's what I'm, I'm living with now with these people. This is why so many people are looking for alternatives. They can't take this anymore. The fail, it's not just this, the establishment's a joke. Everyone knows they're, they're, they are the Democrats, the same thing. It's a unibrow. But it's those that supposedly share our values and articulate often the same things. What do they want to do about it other than being a writer? Man. That was a really insightful article, dude. Is, is that the end to it? That is the end to it. It's all about them. They don't really want to solve the problem. They don't really care. In their heart, deep in their heart, they don't care. They think they care. Some of them. Others clearly don't. Again, this is a decent guy. I don't want to spend too much time on him. I wanted to use that to bring out the problem. And let me just come full circle to Judge Pryor. He was the guy I, qu- I quoted a couple of minutes ago. 11th Circuit Judge. He's uh, you know, the top number one pick for Supreme Court among a lot of the conservative legal eagles. He's a darling, look, a firebrand conservative jurist. And yet, like I said, he had a pretty good quote encapsulating the role of a judge. He'll, he'll speak very eloquently about it. But even him... He was the guy that as Attorney General of Alabama prosecuted, I mean, it's not a real prosecution, it's, it's a disciplinary court, the court of the judiciary in Alabama, this unelected, whatever, whole nonsense, we've spoken about that before, a bunch of just lobbyists sitting on there, and during the cross-examination, he laughed at him and said, wait, so you're going to follow God's law again? Are, are you, if, I, if I put you back on the bench, you're going you're gonna to do this again? What do you mean? You just said this is a state power. They have no jurisdiction. This is the foundation of civilization. You can't redefine. We all agree. Pryor agrees to that. But now I have to actively order the probate judges to issue licenses with their powers because of someone's 
gruesome violence to the Constitution when the entire foundation of judicial review stands in contrast to that because it's predicated on following the supreme law of the land? Folks, I, I can't, you know, vouch for every last thing Roy Moore says and, you know, whereas sometimes politicians are too political, even the ones we like, maybe like a Ted Cruz, this guy is sometimes not political enough and just kind of says certain things. I, I, look, I can't vouch for it. But you know what? Nobody else is speaking to this, and that's why I backed him. You go find me your perfect candidate that articulates it in the exact right way. It does her, but it's actually going to do No. But I, I digress because I know a lot of people have been talking about some of the comments he made. No, I don't agree. I don't believe that there is a first, you know, that that um, you know, legally you have to stand for the anthem. Um, you know, obviously he was just citing the US code related to members of the armed forces at official military events. Um, that is, you know, governed by law. They don't have First Amendment rights within the military. Obviously, and you know, so he just like says, "Oh, like you know, as if everyone has to do that." Uh, yeah, I, I, but but you know, I'm just saying, people are looking for some leadership, and it sure is not coming from these people because they are the problem. So until you you start listening to people like me, you know, you're gonna get, you know, you're gonna get the chemotherapy. You're gonna get people like Trump. You're gonna get other people that you know, maybe along with some good things, will say some things that they shouldn't be saying or whatever. But but that is what it is. Anyway, we're we're on to a full hour here. I got to stop. I'm losing my voice, losing my air, losing my brain. Um, I want you to bookmark this. I want you to send this podcast everywhere. I want you to help me pray to our Lord that he gives us wisdom, power, insights to do what's right and just in his eyes and allow us to be heard and to make contact with the right people and employ the right strategies to do what's right in his eyes because what we're doing now is clearly not working. Thank you so much for indulging me today. God bless you all. Until next time, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.